As a colorectal surgeon, he has dedicated his life to saving and bettering the lives of others. But beyond that, he's also passionate about sharing Jesus. He's Dr. Eric Nelson. I'm John Bradshaw, and this is Our Conversation. Dr. Nelson, thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I mentioned just a second ago you're a colorectal surgeon. So what, what's, what do you do? What's your day job look like? Well, um, as you mentioned, I am a surgeon first. I'm a general surgeon, and so I do take general surgery call and um, take care of the surgical issues that individuals come to the hospital with. But I've done a fellowship, which is some advanced training in colon and rectal surgery, so individuals who have problems with their colon or their rectum or their anus, they generally would uh, seek out my services. Mm-hmm. So so you, you wound up as a surgeon, a physician, you specialized in surgery. Let's go back a little way. Where, where do you spring from? Where was home for you as a kid? Well, my parents were uh, missionaries in Puerto Rico, actually, for 10 years. My mother's an anesthesiologist and my father's an obstetrician gynecologist. And so I grew up in a medical family. But um, about age 10, they moved to Greenville, Tennessee, which is where I would consider home, and they still actually live there um, for, the, for the next few days here, at least. They're going to be moving down here. I'm very thankful oh, they'll be are. here with the grandkids. Yeah, fantastic. But um, I would call Greenville, Tennessee home. It was a good small town to grow up in. How's your Spanish? Um, solamente un poquito. Entiendo así, así. Pero, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, I'm not quite sure what you said there, but I, <laughs> but I think you said it's pretty good. I speak a little bit. Something like that, yeah. yes. Oh, not bad. So y- you, you come from a family of physicians. Were you always going to be a doctor, or was that a, a revelation you came to at some time later in your life? Yeah, I'm thankful for the way God leads and guides each one of us. Uh, I actually considered a variety of other careers. I was actually a music major at Southern Adventist Music uh, University, yeah. uh, studying violin and playing in the orchestra, things of that nature. Um, I wasn't seriously planning to be a musician as my long-term plan, but I considered being a pastor, I considered being a teacher, and of course always uh, wanted to consider the possibility of being a physician. So to make a very long story short, um, I took a year out of college to uh, go be a, go teach and give Bible studies and kind of examine some of these career options, and I met my future wife. She was going to medical school so to chase her down, I had to go to medical school as well. I was going to ask you what it was that, that helped you to see the light and lead you to medical school. Now we know. Great reason. Why surgery? You know, when you're in medical school, you go a thousand different ways. What, what appealed uh, to you about surgery? So it seems to me that most medical students, when they're doing their surgery rotation, they either love it or they hate it. It's not there's no middle road. Either you love the, the operating room and the idea that you're going to work with your hands and very quickly help someone's problem, you know, using, I don't know, mechanical means to readjust anatomy or fix a broken bone or whatever it is you're doing in the operating room. Uh, high stress, uh, very quick-paced environment. Um, other people hate it. My wife hated it. She really didn't like the atmosphere, didn't like the the um, that way of helping people, and so she, of course, went a different road. So most medical students figure out very quickly, this is for me, I can't see myself doing anything else, or 
this is definitely not for me. I never, ever want to come back here ever again. And of course, I was in that first group. Are there a certain set of characteristics common to surgeons, do you think, like this is kind of what it takes? You've got to have ice in your veins or a steady hand or nerves of steel. Would you, would you characterize it in any way? You really need to be this kind of person to be a surgeon or no, just, just a leaning, just a, a sense of calling? Probably in all professions, there's a certain personality type that is drawn to it. And so most people in the operating room are going to kind of have that desire for more immediate results, if you will, perhaps an impatience Mm -hmm. (laughs) on the negative side of that. Um, But it certainly doesn't have to be everybody. I have friends who are surgeons who are not like that. But certainly a majority of the individuals who are drawn to surgery probably have a personality along those lines. I have a sense... Speaking as a layman, as a Philistine when it comes to these matters, I have a sense that there, I want to say must have been, but I think I'll say may have been, moments early on, maybe as a, when you only had your learner's permit as a surgeon, there must have been moments, I want to use the word terror, But I'll back down from that and say, when you realized the stakes are really high doing what I do, you had to have had that realization, did you? And if you did, what in the world was that like? You know, if the flight attendant makes a mistake, she brings you lemonade instead of water. Or, well, one flight attendant brought me vodka instead of water, and I found out a little too late. If the pilot makes a mistake, it can be rather more serious. Yeah, I feel like asking you to tell me more about that uh, mistake and what happened after that. Yeah, that's a fun story. That's a fun story as well. Might have to tell you later. (laughs) Um, But no, I I understand your question. Uh, I can think of two instances. Uh, One is a intern or first-year resident in surgery and another uh, as a fourth-year resident. Uh, The first instance um, was a little bit more of a spiritual understanding that this gentleman on the trauma service was going to die Mm. based on his comorbid conditions, the fact that he'd smoked for a long time, his lungs were bad, and he was requiring increasing amount of pain medication to take care of his injuries, that um, he had made a fairly correct decision that he didn't want to be chronically intubated, you know, have a breathing tube for the rest of his life. And so he knew that one of these nights he was going to die because the pain medication, the opioids that he was receiving to control his pain, his breathing would slow down <clears throat> and he, would, he wouldn't make it. And uh, he didn't have any family. He was alone. And so um, I just remember, you know, thinking about him and I happened to be on call that night that he passed away and I'm um, just trying to sit with him and have other of the nursing staff uh, be there to sit with him and try to... Um, bring him whatever comfort from human solidarity and human contact that he could have during that difficult time and try to minister to his spiritual needs as well. And that really brought home to me that, you know, this is a life and death thing. And there are difficult situations where I can't fix every single problem that's there, but I am called to alleviate suffering, even in those difficult situations. And also the the difficulty of ministering to someone's spiritual needs uh, at the end of their life if they have not had any spiritual you know, longings before that point. Um, trying to minister to someone who you have a very short-term relationship with. Uh, it was, it was a, kind of a life-changing experience for me. 
as a fourth-year resident, um, it was perhaps a little bit more happy of a circumstance. We did save someone's life who at some other hospital had had a kind of emergency surgery done for their auto accident and their spleen had been taken out. But unfortunately, all the blood vessels that go to the spleen, and there's a lot of them, uh, had not been adequately tied off. And so he was continuing to bleed out of his abdomen. They had just stapled his skin shut and there was just blood coming out between the staples. And we took him to the operating room and um, did what we could very quickly because he was so cold and bleeding out that we couldn't keep him in the operating room. We took him to the recovery area and gave him a whole lot of blood transfusions, tried to warm up his core temperature with all the baby lights, you know, those baby heating lights. We brought them all there to try to get him warmed up and then took him back to the operating room at the right time to kind of finish the job there. And uh, I'd never seen someone bleeding that much that quickly and being involved in his care was a very rewarding sort of thing. You know, there's a problem, I'm going to go fix it and and save his life uh, through the miracle of modern medicine. So how do you, did you, do you, did you get used to your line of work being life and death? You see five patients, you lose two. You see 10, you lose one. Whatever, there's some percentage. And it's going to depend on the type of surgery you do. Nursing students have got to cross that hump as well, or maybe nurses. I, I lost my first patient today. I think we probably all know nurses who've been through that and had a really difficult experience. How do you wrap your head around that, that in your job, you're going to lose some? And I, and I say that, a little bit of ignorance here, it depends on the surgeries you do, but you've already described a couple where here were patients that you could have lost them both, thank God one of them came back with the terrible bleeding. How do you, as a, as a human, doctors are a human, I think most of them, how do you adjust to the reality that it's life and death and some people go home to their family and some go home in a body bag and sometimes the margin between one and the other is really slight. How do you, as a human, get your head around that? I don't know. I'm not sure that, as a human, that we ever do. I don't, in my personal religious belief, I don't think humans were ever meant, in God's perfect plan, to experience death and to have to understand those things. And... So I'm, I'm not sure how to answer your question because I still am never, it, it still hurts, if you will, when someone dies and you don't think they needed to die. Um, obviously, it's a little bit easier if someone is much older and makes a conscious decision that I, it's my time and I'd like to stop all the surgical and medical interventions that are keeping me alive and their family is in agreement with their with their uh, decision, that's a lot easier to kind of stomach, if you will, than someone who's younger and it's an unexpected cancer diagnosis and then the surgery is unable to completely eradicate it, if you will, and um, those are much more difficult situations. And I don't think that you know we ever completely get over that. So day-to-day, as a, as a surgeon... What kind of cases are you dealing with mostly? What your typical patient is? Lots of hemorrhoids. Okay, and That's and so a, let me ask you this: Why do people get them? Why do people get hemorrhoids? Well, the vast majority of individuals have. Oh, 
Let me start by saying, maybe your listeners don't know this, everybody has hemorrhoids. Everybody. God created you with six hemorrhoids, in fact. Um, there's a right anterior, right posterior, and left lateral column of hemorrhoids. And in each column, you have an internal and an external hemorrhoid. So you've got six. Even me. Even you. I yes. didn't know. Should I be worried? No, you shouldn't be worried. This is just like a normal part of your body. I mean, we have ten fingers, and we shouldn't worry about it. It's, it's completely normal. Okay, so what Most goes wrong? Most people, when they say, I have hemorrhoids, they're referring to the fact that the hemorrhoids can swell and cause itching or bleeding or prolapse or they're difficult to clean, things of that nature. Um, that's when people say, I have hemorrhoids, and they come to see me. Um, but hemorrhoids are completely normal. Everybody's got them. So, so, so when you see a hemorrhoid patient, it's not that you're seeing someone with hemorrhoids. You're seeing someone whose hemorrhoids are a problem. Are a problem. Yeah, and the oh. reason that they become a problem is usually um, backing up blood flow into the, uh, the anal area. So straining with bowel movements, straining to urinate, smokers who cough a lot, obesity, uh, pregnancy certainly can uh, be a cause, uh, weightlifters who do squats, all of these are very common causes of making hemorrhoids swell. Do, do, do weightlifters know that? Yeah, I'm sure they do. Most they do? of them probably experienced it if they're doing really heavy squats. Yeah. So the way to prevent the hemorrhoids for most people, the average person who's not a, a big weightlifter, is to focus on eating a high-fiber diet. So that way you're not straining, you're not bearing down, because when, when you increase the pressure in your stomach with a valsalva maneuver, whether you're doing heavy lifting or whether you're just chronically obese and it's pushing on... Uh, your blood vessels and backing up the blood there, it's just over time causing those hemorrhoids to expand, which is when you start to notice them. Hmm. So most of us have been educated by television advertising to think that the solution is preparation H. Or at least, maybe not the solution, but but it'll get get you by for a while. But you said fiber. Now, let me, let me investigate that for a moment. When you say fiber, you mean fiber always? Or do you mean fiber always except for weightlifters who've got a problem of a different kind? When you say fiber, you're saying, we'll talk about what that is in just a second, fiber might help, fiber will help 5% of people, or if people took care of that, how much or how, how great a percentage of hemorrhoid problems would be uh, eliminated, not alleviated, but eliminated? As far as preventing people from having swollen hemorrhoids, it's probably well north of 90%. No. Excuse me. Yeah, well north of 90% of hemorrhoid problems could be prevented if everybody ate a high-fiber diet. Okay. I did hear what you just said, but I, I just need to let that settle for a minute. There's a problem that causes an immense amount of discomfort, pain. It's as common as common. A lot of people have it, have, have it as a problem. But you were saying... More than 9 out of 10 people could avoid this if they simply got more fiber in their diet. Absolutely. I'd be out of business if everybody uh, ate enough fiber in their diet. You might have made a mistake by telling everybody. Well, no, I'm, I'm passionate about health education, and so I tell everybody, and it's too late for them usually by the time they're seeing me, but their yeah. family can benefit. And, um, but let's, let's go one step further. The treatment, the first-line treatment for individuals with hemorrhoid issues is also fiber. So it's not only preventing, but also in many cases, not all cases, but in, you know, a good percentage of individuals with kind of early-stage hemorrhoid problems can resolve their problems 
by, uh, by eating enough fiber. I had no idea. I think you've given a lot of people a lot of hope. So, so we have to talk about what, what fiber is, how it works, and what you're talking about. But let's just drill down on this. Many people who identify that they have hemorrhoid issues can resolve that simply by making a change in their diet. Yes. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Eat more fiber, drink a lot of water, and um, you'll get better. Most people will get better. There's a long pause here because I had no idea that that was the case. Well, that's a fantastic thing. Okay, well, let's start about, uh, let's talk about fiber for a minute. What's fiber? So the best place to get fiber, of course, is in your food. Fiber is the insoluble part of your food that can bulk your stools. It passes through unchanged, and the bacteria in your colon uh, can eat it, and it encourages the healthy bacteria in, you've probably heard of the gut microbiome. Yeah. The fiber that we eat is very good for that gut microbiome. And so everybody needs to eat more of it. The average American gets only about 12 to 15 grams of fiber per day. How much do we need? A man needs 40 grams a day. And the average is getting 12 to 15. Correct. A so, third, less, maybe yeah. even less than a third. Yeah, Okay. So well under half. So let, let's talk about this from a mechanical perspective. Uh, what happens inside a person if they're not getting enough fiber? So if you're not getting enough fiber, the stools aren't going to be bulked. And as they get smaller, they become harder because they're not having uh, something that will soak up the water. That can cause a lot of problems with uh, diverticular disease as well. It's probably the cause of a majority of diverticular disease in our country. It obviously causes constipation, which leads to straining and the hemorrhoid issues. And, um, and then there's a lot of other uh, associated problems with it due to the impact on the gut microbiome. I'm fascinated. So we must talk more about this. We're going to talk about what fiber is, where to get it, how to get it, and, and so forth. We are some other maybe, maybe questions that the average person might have. And I think that both you and I have learned something extraordinarily helpful, that a simple change can have profound effects. A simple change can have profound effects on real problems that many people are experiencing on a daily basis. He's Dr. Eric Nelson. I am John Bradshaw. More of our conversation in a moment brought to you by It Is Written. It's everywhere. Adorning churches, adorning people. There's a season every year commemorating the cross. But beyond eggs and rabbits, there's a power the power of a sacrifice, the power of the love of God. Be sure you see At the Cross and learn about the single event that changed the course of history, the event that can change your life forever. Predicted by prophets and foretold by Jesus Himself, what happened at the cross was a demonstration of God's love like no other. Humanity's fall into sin in the Garden of Eden brought upon Adam and Eve and their descendants inescapable consequences. But into that turmoil stepped Jesus, promising the planet a way of escape. Don't miss At The Cross, brought to you by It Is Written TV. You know that at It Is Written, we are serious about studying the Word of God, and we encourage you to be serious as well. Well, here's what you do if you want to dig deeper into God's Word. Go to itiswritten.study for the It Is Written Bible Study Guides online. 25 in-depth Bible studies that will take you through the major teachings of the Bible. You'll be blessed, and it's something you'll want to tell others about as well. 
itiswritten.study. Go further, itiswritten.study. Welcome back to Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. My guest is Dr. Eric Nelson. He is a surgeon specializing in colorectal surgery, and we have just discovered something fantastic about the benefits of fiber. I don't think that if you ran up to the average person, 10 people, and said, how important is fiber, that many people would say unimportant. I think most people have heard, air yeah, fiber, that's important. I don't think many people know how important. And when you said a moment ago that most people are getting a third or less of their the amount of fiber they need, that's pretty alarming. It can't end up well. Does that play into the development of colon cancer? Yes, it certainly does. It's probably an association because many of the foods that are preventative for colon cancer, like fruits and vegetables, are high in fiber. And many of the foods that uh, we know cause colon cancer, such as red meats, grilled meats, and processed meats, those foods have zero fiber. And so it's not necessarily the fiber per se, although it probably has an effect on the microbiome, and perhaps that's the mechanism. But in general, healthy foods, like your grandma always said, eat your fruits and your vegetables, those have fiber in them, whereas the unhealthy foods don't have fiber in them. So where do we get fiber, and how do we make sure we're getting enough fiber? And how do we get enough fiber that we actually want to eat? You get fiber mainly from beans and bran cereal. Those are the two sources that are, that are easy for our body to um, kind of assimilate, if you will, or, or process. Uh, berries, in general, have a lot of fiber, but at least my theory is in order to get the fiber, you have to chew up every single seed on the uh-huh. raspberry, which, you know, who does that? Yeah. I don't. Uh, so beans are probably the best source of uh, fiber. And even some vegetarians, I mean, I'd count myself in that group, uh, don't get enough fiber because many of the fruits and vegetables that we're likely to eat, such as, say, an iceberg lettuce that we make mm. as the base of our salad, it it's good for you, but it's mostly water and it doesn't have nearly as much fiber as the beans or the brand cereal. So an important question. Um, we know what beans means. So what what do you do about that? Your body will adjust over time to whatever diet you are naturally uh, following. There was a lifestyle educator that I um, have high respect for who once said that beans, um, you, you just need to eat more of them. They're very healthy for you, but if this is the first time you're eating them and you're having some of the bloating and gas and flatulence issues that frequently come along with beans... Um, the bacteria, the good bacteria and the bad bacteria are fighting in your gut and what you smell is the gunpowder. And so just, you know, keep with it. The good bacteria will win and your body will make some adjustments. Just stick with it. Stick with it. Because people are wondering, do they go to Beano? Do they wash the beans before? Do they soak them? Do they boil them? You can do all of that as well. It it will help. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. You're still going to get the fiber and the benefit from the beans. But in general, hang in there. Hang in there. And you'll find equilibrium. You will. Okay. So fiber from beans and fiber from... Give me, give me two, three, four, five, six other high-fiber foods. Those are honestly the only two that are extremely high in fiber. Okay. So in general, you want to choose whole wheat products over processed wheat products. Uh, and you want to 
you know, look,、um, eat foods as grown. So it's a whole lot better to eat the apple than it is to drink the apple juice.、Yeah. The apple has fiber, whereas the apple juice doesn't have much of any fiber. And、uh, the same thing is true for most foods. The less processed it is, the more healthy it's going to be. The more fiber it will have. But again, as I mentioned, even vegetarians may not get enough fiber in their diet. And there's nothing wrong with a little fiber supplement. It could be as simple as some wheat germ that you add to your cereal, or some flax seed that you grind up and add to your cereal.、Um, uh, you can get some psyllium husks. There's very simple ways to add fiber to your diet if you feel that you're not getting enough. I saw an article the other day that I found fascinating, talking about、uh, the benefits of whole grains. You can buy a lot of stuff and look on the label, and it will say wheat. But the author was saying, make sure it says whole wheat or whole grain. You concur with that? Is 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 sure? There, there's a difference between wheat and whole wheat. Certainly. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned something a moment ago that I think is worth coming back to. You said red meat has no fiber. You meant no fiber, or was that a euphemism? Like you meant、no. just kind of a little. Unless you're eating the stomach from the cow that has some grass left over in it, all meat products, all animal products, have zero fiber in them. So somebody who's who eats a lot of meat—that's a lot of people—and for them, meat constitutes a large part of their diet. You know, there's a lot of people who don't eat beans, just don't eat beans, because it's not part of their diet. So, what's going on inside that guy? Lots of meat, no beans. How's the, how does that? So, it's bad for him. We can easily say that. So, as a as a surgeon, as a physician, why is it bad? So, there's a wide variety of reasons why it's bad.、Um, I'll just list three. Number one, the diet is likely to be too high in heme iron, which is from the blood,、uh, and that's typically what gives meat its flavor.、Uh, so, that is directly carcinogenic through a variety of mechanisms. Number two, we're focusing on the idea it's low in fiber, and so because of that,、um, they're likely to be constipated. And as the food is moving through their digestive tract, it will not only move more slowly, and the heme iron and other、um, compounds will have、um, more time to contact the gut wall and cause cancer from that mechanism. And the last thing I'll mention is that, especially high heat cooking.、Um, Changes many of the、uh, products within、uh, red meat to become what we call heterocyclic amines, which don't ask me to draw the、hmm. chemical、uh, compound. I couldn't do it, but I understand what the amine ring is and how that can be carcinogenic to the rapidly turning over cells of our colon wall. See, the reason that we worry about colon cancer,、uh, I think many of your viewers understand that cancer is when the DNA within a cell. Uh, mutates such that the cell is replicating out of control,、uh, doing things it shouldn't do as far as invading and l- acquiring new capabilities to travel throughout the body and cause tumors in other places.、Um, it is ignoring the signals the body is sending to it to say stop dividing, and、uh, it's creating a tumor, a growth right there in that area because of all of those things. It's just growing out of control. It has、um, acquired that ability. And the reason that colon cancer is such a、uh, large concern is that the wall of the colon is lined with cells that, by their very nature, because of the job they're doing, they have to rapidly divide and turn over. Those mucosal cells that line our colon that help us absorb food, 
They turn over very rapidly. And because of that, they're especially prone to becoming cancerous cells. What I want to ask you then is, what about fake meat? And in recent times, it's become a big deal. And you, you, you prodded my thinking when you mentioned heme, because there's at least one variety of this fake meat which, whose roots are in this heme thing. What about fake meat? Good, bad, indifferent, bad if, if, if there's too much. How would you advise me if I were asking you this professionally? It's certainly not the best. Um, between eating the real thing and one of these fake meat products, it's probably better. How much better depends, as you mentioned, some of the fake meats now are actually putting heme iron in there and they're engineering it such that it has that. So from that perspective, it's not going to be any better. It would have fewer of the heterocyclic amines if you cooked it the same way, so that would be better. Uh, still wouldn't have any fiber, so from that perspective, it wouldn't be any better. And typically, uh, many of these fake meat um, products are very high in salt. Yeah, and sure. they're still very high in fat. They may have less saturated fat, but again, you have to take it on an individual basis. But uh, I would recommend that if that is helpful for someone to get off of meat, well, perhaps it's helpful for that person. It's better, but it's not the optimal diet. It's not going to replace the beans or the bran cereal or the fruits and vegetables in their diet. Would you say to somebody who has one of those burgers someplace, don't, don't ever? Or as a, as a physician, would you, be, would, you, would you be more relaxed about it and say, oh, on occasion it won't hurt you? You understand the nature of the question because someone just heard us talk and say, is that the last time I've ever? Does it need to be the last time? Should people tread warily or just hightail it out of there as quickly as they can? What I try to do with each person that I meet in my office is try to encourage them to make the most healthful choice for them in their current life circumstance and just think long-term about what it is they want to do in their life and how healthy they want their choices to be. And everybody that comes to meet me anyway seems to have different values, different personalities, and I just try to encourage them along their health journey and... Some people, because of their personality and their values, say, you know, I'm going to make a change that I'm never, ever going to eat any of these things ever again, and, and they stick with it. Other individuals, you know, perhaps move more slowly. And, you know, I try to respect that. Everybody has their own particular journey that they're on, and the, the choices that they make are theirs to make, and I can give them information. But in the end, it's, it's their choice. Let's come back to some of this colon cancer, uh, colon cancer issues. What I want to ask you is, you've been doing this for a little while. What's the trend with colon cancer? Is there more today than there used to be? Have we seen a peak? Are we, are we heading down into a valley now in terms of numbers? How do you see it? So there's good news and bad news. The good news is that colon cancer is on a downslope, if you will, not a very steep one, but it is certainly true that uh, there are fewer colon cancer and rectal cancer cases today than there were 10 years ago, and there's, there's been a steady, slow, but steady decline. That's likely due to increasing uh, screening for colon cancer, which, uh, at least in the case of colonoscopy, not only can detect colon cancer when it exists, but actually can prevent colon cancer by removing those precancerous polyps that then turn into cancer. So as society has more colonoscopies done, 
the uh, rate of colon cancer decreases. It might be, I hope, that at least in certain communities in, in this country and other countries, individuals are learning to make more wise lifestyle choices as far as the fruits and the vegetables and increasing the fiber in their diet, decreasing the amount of animal products in their diet. And as people make those choices as a large population, there will in turn be less colon cancer. Um, the bad news, so that's the good news. The bad news is that colon cancer is being diagnosed in younger and younger individuals. Oh, why in the world is that? No one's really sure. We don't know exactly. Uh, it may be that um, young people are making very unwise health choices, which I think we see that in the childhood obesity epidemic. Sure. Obesity is also associated with colon cancer uh-huh. and uh, not only associated with developing it, but doing worse when you get it. So that may be part of it. And in response to that, all of the uh, medical societies are now recommending your first colonoscopy at age 45 rather than at age 50, which was the older recommendation. So the good news is there's a slow but steady downward trend in the rate of colon cancer. The bad news is it's being diagnosed at earlier and earlier ages. And still, um, the risk that someone in the United States will develop colon cancer is right around 1 in 20. That's high. It is high. And so that's why we need uh, to talk about preventing it and also screening for it. A common question I get from individuals who are very um, health conscious, if you will, and they they are vegetarian. They perhaps eat completely plant-based or vegan, and they exercise. They don't smoke, perhaps don't drink alcohol, uh, is, well, do I still need to get screened for colon cancer because right. I'm doing all of these things sure. to prevent it? A fair, fair question. And the answer is yes. Yeah. It's a numbers game. It's a math question. And the answer is yes, you definitely still need to get screened for colon cancer. I think if I, if I knew there was a 1 in 20 chance that if I went outside, I'd be struck by lightning. I'd do everything. I, I would say those odds are way too high. And I'd want to do something about that. So You might wear a lightning rod <laughs> or put one on your house. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So for, for you, someone who I know is very health conscious, we had some discussions before this program about um, the health choices that um, you feel are wise uh, for you, and your risk is not 1 in 20. It's certainly less than that, assuming you don't have a strong family history, but it's still probably on the order of 1 in 30. One in 30 is not a whole lot better than one in 20, Doctor. It's, it is. It's, it's well, close. for I mean, a large population, it's much better. Think of the hundreds of thousands of people sure. who don't get colon cancer based on the difference between those two numbers. If we could make our entire society you know, eat extremely healthfully, yeah. it would reduce those numbers markedly. Yeah, but my risk went down from 5% to 3.3%. I was a gambler once. Not great odds. Uh, so colon cancer treatment, what does that look like? And how... And how well, I don't want to make. I don't. Want, I honestly don't want to leave someone the impression that a the doctor will just cure me. However, uh, is treatment improving? Are treatment outcomes improving? What's been happening over time with with colon cancer? Treatment. So yes, treatments are improving, but it's important to understand that the treatment for colon cancer is directly related to the stage at which it is diagnosed. Mm-hmm. So if your colon cancer is discovered when you don't have any symptoms from it, in other words, you just got your screening colonoscopy because you knew you should, and they find a colon cancer, it's very, very likely that that colon cancer can be cured with surgery alone. That's good. You just remove that section of colon. Occasionally, you don't even have to do a colectomy or removing the section of colon. Occasionally, you can actually do it through the scope. 
Um, and that's, of course, a benefit to the person. It's less invasive. Um, but if they do require a colectomy, it's almost always done laparoscopically or robotic um, nowadays. So it's small incisions. Most of my patients go home the day after surgery, and um, they don't notice any changes in their diet requirements or their stooling patterns or anything like that. So if it's caught early, very treatable with surgery alone, and the surgery is generally minimally invasive, and they do very well. If you catch a colon cancer after you're starting to have symptoms, you notice that you're bleeding, you have some weight loss, you have some abdominal pains or bloating, or there's some other symptom that then leads to the CT scan or colonoscopy or something else, at that point, although it's still a good chance you can be cured, it's much, much, much less than if it was discovered on a screening test. Hmm. Now we're talking about if it has spread to the lymph nodes, there might be a need for chemotherapy. Uh, if it's a rectal cancer, there might be a need for radiation. Um, but I don't want to leave your listeners without hope. Even individuals who have already had the cancer perhaps spread to their liver um, with multimodality therapy, there's still um, a good quarter percent of those patients who can be completely cured from their colon cancer. They can, they can live a long life, a normal life, by, uh, by treatment for that. Let me ask you a question. I've only got, we've only got about a minute before we go to the final break. You see a lot of patients. You live in the South, so you see a lot of patients who, have, who are people of faith. In your experience, what role does faith play in successful treatment of illness? Faith plays a foundational role in the way we experience illness, the way we respond to it, and the, the ability of us to kind of utilize our whole person, body, mind, and spirit, and soul, to address the illness and uh, have peace through all of it. And having that peace with God is a foundational principle that is helpful for us in facing any disease. Okay, let's change gears. I know that as a man of faith, you're passionate about sharing Christ with others and sharing Christ through health. So... We'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, there's some great stuff just ahead. I'm grateful Dr. Eric Nelson is here and that you are here. More of our conversation in just a moment. Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. Was it God's plan for sin to enter the world? Is the building of a temple necessary before Jesus returns? That's a good question. And I think we've got a pretty good answer for you here. Temptation is not sin. God says, put me to the test. Thank you for remembering that It Is Written exists because of the kindness of people just like you. To support this international life-changing ministry, please call us now at 800-253-3000. You can send your tax-deductible gift to the address on your screen, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Thank you for your prayers and for your financial support. Our number again is 800-253-3000, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Welcome back to Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. My guest is Dr. Eric Nelson. He is a surgeon and a man of faith. And Dr. Nelson, you're passionate about sharing Christ. 
and about something that called health evangelism. What in the world is health evangelism? Health evangelism, to put it very succinctly, is the good news that Jesus wants to help people be healthy. That's it. You know, don't you, that's an absolute revelation to many people, even many Christians. Jesus will save you from your sin, but there's never any talk, never any discussion that Jesus really cares a whole lot about your health to the extent that he and you might actually do something about it. So how do we share that message, that message of the Christ of the gospel, who's also the Christ of good health? I'm very passionate about um, helping my church and any other church that wants to do health evangelism programs that pick one particular addiction in society. The easiest one is food, because Mm -hmm. frankly, we as Americans are addicted to food. Pick that addiction and put together a program that is able to say to them, you know, come to this program. We're going to teach you how to pray. We're going to teach you how to claim the promises of God and access the spiritual power that Jesus wants to give you to overcome this stronghold in your life. And we're going to utilize some small groups. We'll have some accountability partners for you. And we will teach you how to, how to change through the power that Jesus wants. And that seems to me to be the only thing that the Christian church actually has to offer our society. Society already has Weight Watchers, and there's a diet book printed every week that's new. There's many different ways that people have to use secular techniques of behavior change to try to lose weight or overcome their diabetes or hypertension or depression, anxiety, whatever program it is you want to think about. But what the Christian church has to offer is the spiritual power that Jesus gives to help us overcome what, from a Christian perspective, we would call sin. I've heard it said that gluttony is a prevailing sin of this generation, Mm. and I think that any look at the uh, BMI charts that uh, the CDC puts out would probably confirm that fact. Mm -hmm. Now, health evangelism, in your experience, successful, unsuccessful, somewhere in the middle, must be successful, that's why you believe in it and do it. Has to be successful. Very successful. I, I guarantee anybody who comes to a health evangelism program and genuinely connects with God and is willing to surrender their life to God and say, help me with this problem that I have, they're going to be successful. Mm-mm-mm. Is this the sort of thing that any congregation can do, or do you really need to be specialized and, and have a whole ton of expertise? It's helpful to have at least one or two people in your congregation who are a health professional, such as a nurse or a physical therapist or a physician, um, but it's not required. Anybody can share the good news that Jesus wants people to be healthy. And there's lots of programs out there that you know are kind of out of the box and that you can utilize for that purpose if you don't particularly have medical expertise yourself. So I have a question for you, and that's this. So you mentioned someone with medical expertise. You mentioned a nurse, physical therapist. You'd add to that, you'd say a physician, you might say, I'm putting words in your mouth, I'm assuming, you might say a a counselor type person. Is there a danger? Let me me ask it this way because I think the danger is yes. So I want to reach my community, I want to share good health. What do I not want to be talking about? What do I want to be careful about? You probably don't want to be sharing the latest health information that you gleaned from social media. Mm -hmm. And... All of us are influenced by our surroundings. All of us 
are more influenced than we know by the news programs we choose and social media. And we honestly get a lot of our health information from our friends on social media. And a lot of that information may not be true for an entire population. Now, it may be true that your friend was benefited by some intervention or vitamin or mineral or herbal supplement that they took. Sure. Um, and in their particular situation, maybe it was even right for them. But when we're meeting the public and doing public health outreach events, we need to make sure that the information we're sharing is generally applicable over an entire population group rather than just you know, anecdotal data. I know there are times that theologians will hear preachers preach and it drives them up the wall because they're saying, oh, what are you doing to the text? <laughs> and, and that's understandable. How about you as a physician? And, and you know, you're out there at the sharp edge of the, edge of the end of the spear as a surgeon. What do you hear that causes you to say, oh, I wish that could be not said or unsaid? So I really want to speak to the social media stuff. What's the disinformation that you are hearing? And we'll try and be as, as, as general and gentle as we can. What's some of the maybe fad stuff or cranky stuff or just plain old wives' tales that get circulated that you'd wish weren't so that's a hole with no bottom as they say yeah and so probably i won't i'm not going to list one specific thing what i would like to focus on instead is the underlying problem of not being able to think critically mm, and, and sort data accurately no th that's that's a fair issue if i'm a, if i'm a layman and I don't know nothing about medicine, and something floats past me on the internet that says acai berries will cure every last problem you ever had, how do I know whether or not to believe that, particularly when my friend says they're helping me so much? How do I... I just pluck that from the sky. Sure, sure. How does one think critically through this? First off, we need to realize that all of us are human and we have biases. Sure. And the only way to really eliminate those biases and find out what the truth of a cause and effect relationship between an intervention and a problem is a randomized blinded controlled trial. Most of your listeners probably understand that what that means is you get a group of people who are somewhat similar, half of them get the, to use your example, the acai berries, the other half get a placebo sure. that looks, smells, perhaps even tastes like it, but it doesn't have the active ingredient that is thought to cure whatever condition you're looking at. And even the people giving the pills and the placebos are blinded to who's getting what. And then you measure that over a statistically significant sample, so it's not just 20 or 30 people, it's a large group of people. And <clears throat> you find out whether or not that particular intervention helps or hurts this particular problem. And that's the only way to really discover a cause and effect relationship and put aside all those biases. The second best thing would be large, large population studies of hundreds of thousands of people mm -hmm. looking at how their health is impacted by you know, what they're eating or their exercise habits, etc. Yeah, I just saw one where 200,000 people were followed for 30 years and they concluded that processed food, not just World Health Organization said processed meat is cancer-causing, no ifs, ands, or buts, but now they're saying processed food results in, in elevated risk for 
Lots of things. Lots of things. Yeah. And that was 200,000 people followed over 20, 30 years. Yeah. So if you have 200,000 people followed for a long time, it's going to be true for you as well. But if you have 25 people who tried something and are saying that it's going to help you, especially if they're selling it, yeah, yeah. it's very unlikely to be true and you just really need to be careful. So learning how to think. I mean, there's levels of evidence even within the scientific literature. You can pull studies that show this, that, or the other, but understand that anecdotal data is at the bottom of that pyramid, and then you have cohort studies where you take a group of people and compare them to others. Then you have the large population studies that you just referred to, but at the top of that pyramid is a randomized controlled trial where you actually take individuals and you perhaps feed one group this and the other group this and follow them over time. Put it to the test and watch what happens. Now, you're aware, you'd be acutely aware that there's an enormous... Okay, I was about to use the word enormous. In certain segments of the population, there's an enormous amount of distrust of medicine. Big pharma is in the news a lot. That's not medicine as much as uh, the pharmaceutical industry, so we'll, we'll, we'll put that to one side. I have the sense that among... Christians who are conscientious and would call themselves conservative, that distrust goes up. I may be wrong about that. What do we... I'll give you an example. There's no way I'm going to take chemotherapy because it's all a scam and it's just people making money. You've heard that. Everybody's heard that. Many people have said it. It's patently not true because as a physician, you are aware that chemotherapy is absolutely curative for... Many people certain in many people. situations. Yes. Certain people in certain I, I didn't give chemo a blank pass, all people at all times. But the evidence is it's obvious chemo helps some people sometimes. How do you help somebody who's just blindly prejudiced against medicine when, when you're a physician? Or how does anybody reason with or help somebody to understand maybe there's actually some light in conventional medicine. It's difficult, and you may not be able to help every single person, but again, with every person, no matter where they are in a health journey, I just try to share the data yeah. as faithfully as I can, as as truthfully as I know how, and just say this is this is what's true. And they have to make decisions based on who they trust and don't trust. And it's, it is tragic when some individuals, I, I've had individuals that have seen me, my office who have chosen less than reputable sources for information uh-huh. and tried to treat cancer with things that everybody knows don't work. And they die. And they die. Yeah. And that was unnecessary and tragic. But I do agree with the underlying um, desire of those individuals that you just described. My goal as a physician is to help people get off medications. Sure. And that, I think, should be the hope of all physicians. There's a certain segment of the population that is not interested in changing their lifestyle to try to get off medications. And those individuals, well, you just try to do the best you can for them, but they're not going to get healthy. Because there's a whole slew of of conditions and illnesses where medication is either not necessary or isn't the long-term solution. Lifestyle change can absolutely help. You spoke earlier... uh, Fiber. It's going to fix a whole ton of problems for people. So why be medicated? I've advised my children to take all the medications they need to take. Yeah, take and every hopefully. one you need. 
And, but try uh, to change your lifestyle so you yeah. can get off of well, any fact, of those medications. The fact of the matter is, they're in the early 20s and they've needed zero, know, probably none. I think I think it's none in all that time. So if you stick with what you need, um, one thing that's been a real help for me along the way is I've been able to 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 counsel broadly. Uh, that is, I may be facing something. I've been able to ask two, three, four different people who are knowledgeable in the field. Would you advise a person to counsel broadly? What I mean is this. I'm facing a condition. My friend says use their supplement. Wouldn't it be wise to do your best to speak to people who are in the know medically and ask people who actually know? Would you advise that? Sure. Anytime you have a serious diagnosis, such as cancer being the obvious example, uh, I'd advise everybody to get a second opinion. I mean, just because you have a good physician, they're not going to be offended. I would never be offended if someone is seeking a second opinion opinion from someone who's qualified to treat the condition that they are um, they're experiencing yeah okay back to health evangelism health as a way to share jesus why is health an effective way to share jesus health is an effective way to share jesus because when people experience jesus help in their lives in a very practical manner they are interested in deepening that relationship and learning more about what jesus says in the bible for them and learning more about what the Bible says that can be of help to them in their their faith journey. Uh, Many times it seems that uh, Christians from a wide variety of denominations are most interested in sharing the particular beliefs of their background or their denomination, and the idea of having a relationship with Jesus, and not just a wishy-washy relationship, but the kind of relationship where I experience Jesus' power in my life on a daily basis, that type of a relationship. It seems to me that if we lead with that, it's more likely that uh, we can have a winning influence on our friends and our neighbors and share the beauty of Christianity with them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's not a great emphasis on the power of Christ in a person's life on a daily basis. We won't get into the whys of that might be, but I, I would like you to address, take as long as you, uh, as you like, just how powerful is God and what do you think a lot of people are missing and not understanding about a relationship with Christ? Well, let me use an example of a um, friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, who came to one of our weight loss programs. Um, this individual happened to be in a pastoral situation and they were Um, after going through the Best Way program, which is the weight loss program that we uh, do at our church. And that's a good one. He um, indicated that he had counseled individuals for alcoholism, drug use, pornography, uh, other sexual problems, um, anger management issues. He'd sat across from them and said, Jesus can help you change. Let's read the Bible together. Let's learn to claim these promises. But it had never occurred to him that Jesus could help him with overeating. The idea, there was this unhealthy dichotomy between problems that we assume are problems of the spirit or spiritual issues and physical problems. When we're whole people, those problems are inextricably interlinked. We can't separate our minds from our bodies. And for the first time, he realized Jesus' power in his life and experienced that in a big way, and that was an eye-opening revelation for him. And that was very satisfying to see and help him through that journey. And uh, he continues on that journey, all of us do, um, to see how Jesus can help me change this problem in my life. Fantastic. All right, Doctor, we have just a short time left. 
So I want to ask the doctor for some advice. Give me some advice, medical advice. Give you some advice? If I came to you and said, you've got 25 or 30 seconds or 60 seconds just to tell me the stuff I really need to know, boom, 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 and I'm just Joe Average, what are you telling me? The average American, if I'm speaking to them, they need to eat more fiber. Obviously, as a colorectal surgeon, I'm going to lead with that. They need to drink more water. It turns out if you take a lot of fiber without drinking the water, you're going to be very constipated, and that's very miserable. So eat more fiber, drink more water, exercise 30 minutes every day, and that's my weakness. I don't always get 30 minutes of exercise every day. In fact, I frequently don't. Um, Don't smoke, don't drink, and uh, eat a low-fat, high-fiber, zero-cholesterol diet all the time. If you eat a high-fiber, low-fat, zero-cholesterol diet, In general, that's going to be a plant-based diet. Um, You are going to avoid probably 80 to 90% of the problems that I treat and well over 50% of the problems that the average American experiences. The weight of chronic disease in our country is crushing. We we spend an ever-increasing amount of our gross national product on chronic health care, not acute health care like surgery for cancer or fixing someone after an auto accident, but chronic problems that are just crushing our nation's economic productivity. Um, The answer is not more insurance companies. The answer is not, you know, trying to just keep paying that bill. The answer is reversing the underlying causes of disease. And eating a high-fiber, low-fat, zero-cholesterol diet, no smoking, no drinking, and plenty of exercise, that's going to solve that problem. I'm convinced. Dr. Nelson, thanks. It's been great fun, hugely beneficial. I really appreciate you taking your valuable time. And thank you for joining us. I hope you'll join us again for more conversations in future. With Dr. Eric Nelson, I'm John Bradshaw. This has been our conversation. Our conversation.